0: Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. From the gospel according to St. Luke, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Unlike so many of the parables in the gospels which are aimed at the multitudes, the many... The one we hear today is a parable aimed straight at the some, a few of the people, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. I'm certain that if you were honest with yourself this morning for a moment, you could hear this as aimed directly at you. For now, it is enough to note that Jesus is aware that there are some in his hearing who trust in themselves, who believe that they are righteous and that despise others. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. In the coming verses and chapters, he will come to Jericho, that way station, before making the ascent up to Jerusalem. And by the way, if you've ever been there, you know it's literally up. It's a 3,000-foot climb. It is probably the case that he is traveling as part of a large group of people, going up to Jerusalem for the Passover, to worship in the temple, to eat the Passover, to make the sacrifices required according to the law. No one could have known that in that very week, he would himself be sacrificed. He would himself be the Passover lamb. He would himself become the temple for God's people. The temple was understood at this time to be a place of justification above all else. Sacrificial animals bought and sold, transactions completed, sins forgiven. But Jesus does not depict the temple as a place of animal sacrifice, but rather a place for the sacrifice of the self, a place of justification by faith, by trust in the God of love who accepts The contrite of heart and rejects the proud. The God who gives grace to the humble, but who opposes the proud. We hear from him that two men went up into the temple to pray. We think, well, that's a rather simple matter, isn't it? It's quite, you know, just like you go through the doors and that's it. Not so simple in those days. To fill in the blanks a bit, both of them would have undergone many ritual baths, perhaps several of them, for the sake of purifying themselves so that they could even dare to enter the temple. Ritual prayers were made, each one praying the traditional psalms upon entering. Each one would have repeated over and over again the Shema, That most basic summary of the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Each would have made various ritual observances upon entering through, each one would have made certain remembrances. Each one would have made the long journey to get there, presumably. But we read that there is one significant difference from the outset between the two of them. And that is that one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. Both are Jews. Both are members of the covenant people of God. How one became a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, we do not know. Maybe they grew up in, maybe they grew up in Pharisee and tax-collecting families, respectively. The Pharisees of the time were, and I need to make this point, I think recent scholarship has borne this out, they were not exactly the bad guys. We often depict them as sort of like these, these really evil, nefarious types hanging around, causing trouble. They weren't that way at all. They were, in fact, the very best of the Jewish people. Men who had consecrated themselves in absolute devotion to the law. To be a Pharisee was to be a man who had never committed a single transgression ever against a single commandment. The Pharisees not only held up legal, legal perfection according to the law as the ideal of human life, but actually believed that they had made complete obedience to the law possible and they spread this gospel of obedience, believing that the Messiah would not come until all his people were as they were. The tax collectors, on the other hand, instead of taking up their places in this kind of bureaucracy to come, took up places in the bureaucracy that was now, the Roman bureaucracy, as those who harassed and taxed their own people. These were Jews who, armed with the full might of the Roman legion, forced their own people to pay taxes to Caesar and took enough to make themselves usually quite wealthy in the meantime. They were known openly to be fraudulent. They were known to deprive people of their living, to take land and livestock, etc., unjustly. But the question before us is what these two men thought of each other. Well, we find out about one, but not the other. The Pharisee stands up close and the tax collector far off, and the Pharisee prays within himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. There's actually a progression built in there. It goes from extortion to a lack of justice to adultery to tax collecting. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Very often in depictions of this in art, the the Pharisee is standing there putting his hand into the offering basin as he's saying this. To the Pharisee, the tax collector is not only an extortioner, unjust, and an adulterer, but worse than all of that. He is the lowest imaginable human being. He is the reason for all of the people's troubles. Under the law, the Pharisee is perfect, and the tax collector, a total and unmitigated disaster of human nature. What the tax collector thought of the Pharisee, we are not told. But you and I have been through it enough to imagine it, yes? Yes. To the tax collector, the Pharisee is the very example of everything good, everything that he is not. The Pharisee is a somebody, and the tax collector before God, worse than a nobody. Everything that the tax collector is, he is an extension of that brutal Roman authority. He is a symbol of an unjust occupation. The Pharisee trusts in this rather impressive tradition, exemplifying the very best of Jewish practice. One wonders what the good Pharisee would have thought of the sacrifices of the temple. Some might go so far as to say that Pharisees didn't even really care about sacrifices. Why should I need a sacrifice if I've never sinned? They clearly hated the temple system especially all the conversions of currency, the exorbitant prices of sacrifices exacted by their Sadducee enemies. But I wonder this morning if you can identify with either one of these men. Perhaps you grew up and found super-religious people off-putting. Perhaps alternatively you found them incredibly alluring and perhaps special and wondered if you could ever be one of them. Maybe you with the tax collector could say, why doesn't God love me as much as this perfect man, this perfect woman, this righteous person? Why doesn't God love me like he loves her? Perhaps you identify more with those who despise others. You grew up and you were raised in a family to be the ideal Christian, to be a tithing Christian, a worshiping Christian, A Bible-believing Christian, a holiness Christian, a sold-out Christian, a traditional Christian, a missionary's kid, a pastor's kid, a leader in the youth group, a worship leader, or in my case, an acolyte, a good Christian. Maybe you can identify with both in some sort of strange and personal way. These men are the personifications of two kinds of people. And what they are is not determined because of fate, or because of that's just the way things are, but because God is the God of love. The one, however, exalts himself, and the other humbles himself. He becomes more humbled, indeed even humiliated, more than he ever could be. One puffs up his chest in utter arrogance and pride, the very sin of Satan. And the other beats his chest and won't even look up to heaven, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The part we didn't get to in today's reading, unfortunately, is this. Immediately following those scene, that scene, you can imagine those who trust in themselves thinking, "Well, that's an interesting story. Wonder what he meant by that." We read this. Now they, we don't know who they were. It might have been these people. Now they were bringing infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So the disciples see this and they rebuke those who are bringing these children. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. These two sections are not unrelated, but completely related. Related. In fact, it's a travesty that this was left out of the gospel reading. It wouldn't have taken much to add it in, not much time. You see, the tax collector is the child and the Pharisee, the rebuking, high-minded grown-up. Jesus is pointing to the childlike faith of the tax collector, the trust he puts in the love and care of God. The following from the theologian Herbert McCabe is illustrative of this distinction. Consider for a moment this, a child and her parents. One thing that is necessary for the health and growth of children is that they should believe that their their parents love them. This is almost as necessary as food and drink, and indeed without it the children may die because of refusing food and drink. This belief is necessary for their health. When you hear someone say that faith is necessary for salvation, remember that this is just the same thing in bigger words, words that reach down to a deeper level of belief and health. He says this, The whole of our faith is the belief that God loves us. I mean, there isn't anything else. Anything else we believe is just a way of saying that God loves us. Any proposition, any article of faith is only an expression of faith if it is a way of saying that God loves us. You see, the Pharisee has forgotten that the whole purpose, that whole thing upon which the law and the prophets hang, that whole Jewish legal tradition is in place so that he may love God more. That is at the heart of the law. Something he repeats every single day, many times over. Something that he had repeated to himself that very day as he entered the temple, and yet it has been entirely forgotten. The problem is that his legal observance has become more of an outward expression of his loyalty to the covenant people of God than to the covenant God himself. The God who reaches into this world and makes a people of his own. The God who saves his people out of his great love. And I want to warn you about this. On the best day, this is a great day. The weather's great. On the best day, the church's tradition, her liturgy, her sacraments, her music, her teaching... Is the necessary vehicle to draw us to the love of God, to lead us to true humility, to lead us to say with the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But at times we can make all those things replacements for the love of God, can we not? Expressions of loyalty and faith, not in God, but in ourselves, in our fellow Christians. As if to say, I'm not one of those people. They become replacements. And we make them as such. And we become proud and we lose hold of the faith we ought to put rightly in God alone, to love us and redeem us. Well, what is the answer to this quandary? Put simply, it is to learn something from the most unlikely of people. And the first that, God, that Jesus gives us is the tax collector, and the second is a child. It's often very difficult for self-righteous people to accept correction or teaching from those they think least capable or talented or able to give. But alas, that is the way of being a Christian, is it not? The tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the child depicted in this story, these, these infants being brought, simply ask for the Lord's blessing. Those two together. God be merciful to me, a sinner, and bless me. In the Eastern Church, there's this wonderful and long tradition of praying this very simple prayer, so often that it becomes like the breath you breathe. An interior disposition of childlike humility towards God and an appeal for his love to become manifest in your life. And the prayer is simply, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you've ever seen Orthodox Christians, they have ropes around their wrists, and they're to be prayed that prayer on each knot. It is the prayer of childlike faith, Asking Jesus to shed his glorious light upon the darkest of places, to be merciful, to love us, and in turn to make us humble and meek. So that the law of mercy comes to even fulfill the law of commandments. Isn't this what is at the heart of the faith? The cross? By which the law and its commandments are put to death and stood up in a new living body of mercy. Yes, to ask the Lord for the blessings of all of this, all of that mercy, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.